Section 32 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 32. The First Crusade, A.D. 1096 to 1099, by Sir George W. Cox, Part 2. Meanwhile, the main army of the Crusaders was advancing toward the Syrian capital, Antioch, that ancient and luxurious city whose fame had gone over the whole Roman world for its magnificence, its unbounded wealth, its soft delights, and its unholy pleasures. The days of its greatest splendor had passed away. Its walls were partially in ruins, its buildings were in some parts crumbling away or had already fallen, but against assailants utterly ignorant and awkward in all that relates to the blockade of cities, it was still a formidable position. Nor could they invest it until they had passed the Iron Bridge, so called from its iron-plated gates, of nine stone arches, which spanned the stream of the Ifrin at a distance of nine miles from the city. This bridge was carried by the impetuous charge of Robert of Normandy, aided by the more steady efforts of Godfrey, and in the language of an age which delighted in round numbers, a hundred thousand warriors hurried across to seize the splendid prize which now seemed almost within their grasp. But the city was in the hands of men who had been long accustomed to despise the Greeks, and who had not yet learned to respect the valor of the Latins. Preparing himself for a resolute defense, the Seljukian governor Bagasian had sent away as useless, if not mischievous, most of the Christians within the town, and the crusading chiefs had begun to discuss the prudence of postponing all operations till the spring, when Raymond of Toulouse, with some other chiefs, insisted that delay would imply fear, and that the imputation of cowardice would ensure the paralysis of their enterprise. The city was therefore at once invested, so far as the forces of the crusaders could suffice to encircle it, and a siege began which in the eyes of the military historian must be absolutely without interest, and of which the issue was decided by paroxysms of fanatical vehemence on the one side, and by lack, not of bravery, but of generalship on the other. Of the eastern and northern walls, the blockade was complete. Of the west, it was partial, and the failure to invest a portion of the western wall, with two out of the five gates of the city, left the movements of the Turks in this direction free. But the besiegers were in no hurry to begin the work of death. The wealth of the harvests and the vintage spread before them its irresistible temptations, and the herds feeding in the rich pastures seemed to promise an endless feast. The cattle, the corn, and the wine were alike wasted with besotted folly, while the Turks within the walls received tidings, it is said, of all that passed in the crusading camp from some Greek and Armenian Christians to whom they allowed free egress and ingress. Of this knowledge they availed themselves in planning the sallies by which they caused great distress to the besiegers, whose clumsy engines and devices seemed to produce no result beyond the waste of time and who felt perhaps that they had done something when they blocked up the gate of the bridge with huge stones dug from the neighboring quarries. Three months passed away, and the crusaders found themselves not conquerors, but in desperate straits from famine. The winter rains had turned the land round their camp into a swamp, and lack of food left them more and more unable to resist the pestilential diseases which were rapidly thinning their numbers. A foraging expedition under Bohemond and Tancred filled the camp with food, it was again recklessly wasted. The second famine scared away Tatikios, the lieutenant of the Greek emperor Alexius, 
but the crusading chiefs were perhaps still more disgusted by the desertion of William of Mellon, called the Carpenter, from the sledgehammer blows which he dealt out in battle. Hunger obtained a victory even over the hermit Peter, who was stealing away with William of Mellon, when he with his companion was caught by Tancred and brought back to the tent of Bohemond. For a moment the look of things was changed by the arrival of ambassadors from Egypt. To the Fatimite caliph of that country the progress of the crusading arms had thus far brought with it but little dissatisfaction. The humiliation of the Seljukian Turks could not fail to bring gain to himself, if the flood of Latin conquests could be checked and turned back in time. His generals besieged Jerusalem and Tyre, and when the Fatimite once more ruled in Palestine, his envoys hastened to the crusaders' camp to announce the deliverance of the Holy Land from its oppressors, to assure to all unarmed and peaceable pilgrims a month's unmolested sojourn in Jerusalem, and to promise them his aid during their march, on condition that they should acknowledge his supremacy within the limits of his Syrian empire. The arguments and threats of the caliph were alike thrown away. The Latin chiefs disclaimed all interest in the feuds and quarrels of rival sultans and in the fortunes of Mahometan sects. God himself had destined Jerusalem for the Christians, and if any held it who were not Christians, these were usurpers whose resistance must be punished by their expulsion or their death. The envoys departed not encouraged by this answer, and still more perplexed by the appearance of plenty and by the magnificence of a camp in which they had expected to see a terrible spectacle of disorder and misery. The resolute persistence of the besiegers convinced Bagasian of the need of reinforcements. These were hastening to him from Caesarea, Aleppo, and other places, when they were cut off by Bohemond and Raymond, who sent a multitude of heads to the envoys of the Fatimite Caliph, and discharged many hundreds from their engines into the city of Antioch. The Turks had their opportunity for reprisals when the arrival of some Pisan and Genoese ships at the mouth of the Orontes drew off the greater part of the besieging army. The crusaders were returning with provisions and arms when their enemies started upon them from an ambuscade. The battle was fierce, but the defeat of Raymond, which threatened dire disaster, was changed into victory on the arrival of Godfrey and the Norman Robert, whose exploits equaled or surpassed, if we are to believe the story, even those of Arthur, Lancelot, or Tristram. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Turks fell. Their bodies were buried by their comrades in the cemetery without the walls. The Christians dug them up, severed the heads from the trunks, and paraded the ghastly trophies on their pikes, not forgetting to send a goodly number to the Egyptian caliph by way of showing how his Seljukian friends or enemies had fared. The picture is disgusting, but if we shut our eyes to these loathsome details, the truth of the history is gone. We are dealing with the wars of savages, and it is right that we should know this. The next scene exhibits Godfrey and Bohemond in fierce quarrel about a splendid tent, which, being intended as a gift for the former, had been seized by an Armenian chief and sent to the latter. But there was now more serious business on hand. Rumor spoke of the near approach of a Persian army, and the besieged, under the plea of wishing to arrange terms of capitulation, obtained a truce which they sought probably only for the sake of gaining time. The days passed by, but no offers were made, and their disposition was shown by seizing a crusading knight in the groves near the city and tearing his body in pieces. The Latins returned with increased fury to the siege, but the defense, although more feeble, was still protracted, and Bohemond began to feel not only that fraud might succeed where force had failed, but that from fraud he might reap, not safety merely, 
of wealth and greatness. His plans were laid with a renegade Christian named Firuz, high in the favor of the governor, with whom he had come into contact either during the truce or in some other way. By splendid promises, he ensured the zealous aid of his new ally, and then came forward in the council with the assurance that he could place the city in their hands, but that he could do this only on condition that he should rule in Antioch as Baldwin ruled in Edessa. His claim was angrily opposed by the provincial Raymond, but this opposition was overruled, and it was resolved that the plan should be carried out at once. There was need for so doing. Rumors spread within the city that some attempt was to be made to betray the place to the besiegers, and hints or open accusations pointed out Firuz as the traitor. Like other traitors, the renegade thought it best to anticipate the charge by urging that the guards of the towers should on the very next day be changed. His proposal was received as indubitable proof of his innocence and his faithfulness, but he had made up his mind that Antioch should fall that night, and that night by means of a rope ladder, Bohemond, with about sixty followers, the ropes broke before more could ascend, climbed up the wall. Seizing ten towers, of which all the guards were killed, they opened a gate, and the Christian host rushed in. The banner of Bohemond rose on one of the towers, the trumpets sounded for the onset, and a carnage began in which at first the assailants took no heed to distinguish between the Christian and the Turk. In the awful confusion of the moment, some of the besieged made their way to the citadel, and there shut themselves in, ready to resist to the death. Of the rest, few escaped. Ten thousand, it is said, were massacred. Bagasian, with some friends, passed out beyond the besiegers' lines, but, fainting from loss of blood, he fell from his horse, and his companions hurried on. A Syrian Christian heard his groans, and striking off his head, carried the prize to the camp of the conquerors. Firuz lived to be a second time a renegade, and to close his career as a thief. The victory was for the Crusaders a change from famine to abundance, and their feasting was accompanied by the wildest riot and the most filthy debauchery. But if heedless waste may have been one of the most venial of their sins, it was the greatest of their blunders. The reports which spoke of the approach of the Persians were not false. The Turks within the citadel suddenly found that they were rather besiegers than besieged, and that the Christians were hemmed in by the myriads of Kerboga, Prince of Mosul, and the warriors of Khalij Arslan. The old horrors of famine were now repeated, but in greater intensity, and the doom of the Latin host seemed now to be sealed. Stephen, Count of Chartres, had deserted his companions before the fall of the city, Others now followed his example, and with him set out on their return to Europe. In Phrygia, Stephen encountered the emperor Alexius, who was marching to the aid of the crusaders, not only with a Greek army, but with a force of well-appointed pilgrims who had reached Constantinople after the departure of Godfrey and his fellows. The story told by Stephen drove out of his head every thought except that of his own safety. The order for retreat was given, and the pilgrim warriors, not less than the Greeks, were compelled to turn their faces westward. In Antioch, the crusading soldiers were fast sinking into utter despair. Discipline had well nigh come to an end, and so obstinate was their refusal to bear arms any longer that Bohemond resolved to burn them out of their quarters. These were consumed by the flames, which spread so rapidly as to fill him with fear that he had destroyed not only their dwellings, but his whole principality. His experiment brought the men back to their duty, but so despondingly was their work done, that but for some signal succor, the end, it was manifest, must soon come. In a credulous age, such succor at the darkest hour, if obtained at all, 
will generally be obtained through miracle. A Lombard priest came forward to whom St. Ambrose of Milan had declared in a vision that the third year of the crusade should see the conquest of Jerusalem. Another had seen the Savior himself, attended by his virgin mother and the prince of the apostles, had heard from his lips a stern rebuke of the crusaders for yielding to the seductions of pagan women, as if the profession of Christianity altered the color and the guilt of a vice, and lastly had received the distinct assurance that in five days they should have the help which they needed. The hopes of the crusaders were roused. With hope came a return of vigorous energy, and Peter Bartholomew, chaplain to Raymond of Toulouse, seized the opportunity for recounting a vision which was to be something more than a dream. To him, St. Andrew had revealed the fact that in the church of St. Peter lay hidden the steel head of the spear which had pierced the side of the Redeemer as he hung upon the cross, and that holy lance should win them victory over all their enemies as surely as the spear which imparted irresistible power to the knight of the Sangreal. After two days of special devotion, they were to search for the long-lost weapon. On the third day, the workmen began to dig, but until the sun had set, they toiled in vain. The darkness of night made it easier for the chaplain to play the part which Sir Walter Scott, in The Antiquary, assigns to Herman Swivel in the ruins of St. Ruth. Barefooted and with a single garment, the priest went down into the pit. For a time, the strokes of his spade were heard, and then the sacred relic was found, carefully wrapped in a veil of silk and gold. The priest proclaimed his discovery, the people rushed into the church, and from the church throughout the city spread the flame of a fierce enthusiasm. Nine or ten months later, Peter Bartholomew paid the penalty of his life for his fraud or his superstition. A bribe taken by his master, Raymond, brought that chief into ill odor with his comrades, and let loose against his chaplain the tongue of Arnold, the chaplain of Bohemond. Raymond had traded on fresh visions of his clerk, and Arnold boldly attacked him in his citadel by denying the genuineness of the holy lance. Peter appealed to the ordeal of fire. He passed through the flames, as it seemed, unhurt. The bystanders pressed to feel his flesh, and were vehement in their rejoicings at the result which vindicated his integrity. He had really received fatal injuries. Twelve days afterward he died, and Raymond suffered greatly in his dignity and his influence. The infidel was doomed, but the crusaders resolved to give him one chance of escape. Peter the Hermit was sent as their envoy to Kerboga to offer the alternative of departure from a land which St. Peter had bestowed on the faithful, or of baptism, which should leave him master of the city and territory of Antioch. The reply was short and decisive. The Turk would not embrace an idolatry which he hated and despised, nor would he give up soil which belonged to him by right of conquest. The report of the hermit raised the spirit of the crusaders to fever heat, and on the feast of St. Peter and St. Paul they marched out in twelve divisions, in remembrance of the mission of the twelve apostles, while Raymond of Toulouse remained to prevent the escape of the Turks shut up in the citadel. The Holy Lance was borne by the papal legate Adhemar, Bishop of Puy, and the morning air laden with the perfume of roses was now regarded as a sign assuring them of the divine favor. They were prepared to see good omens in everything, and they went in full confidence that departed saints would, as they had been told, take part in the battle and smite down the infidel. The fight, one of brute force on the Christian side, of some little skill as well as strength on the other, had gone on for some time when such help seemed to become needful. Tancred had hurried to the aid of Bohemond, who was grievously pressed by Kilij Arslan, and Kerboga was bearing heavily on Godfrey and Hugh of Vermandois, 
when, clothed in white armor and riding on white horses, some human forms were seen on the neighboring heights. The saints are coming to your aid, shouted the Bishop of Puy, and the people saw in these radiant strangers the martyrs St. George, St. Maurice, and St. Theodore. Without awaiting their nearer approach, the crusaders turned on the enemy with a force and fury which were now irresistible. Their cavalry could do little. Two hundred horses only remained of the sixty thousand which had filled the plain a few months before. But the hedge of spears advanced like a wall of iron, and the Turks gave way, broke, and fled. It was rout, not retreat, and with the crusaders' victory was followed by the massacre of men, women, and children. The garrison in the citadel at once surrendered. Some declared themselves Christians and were baptized. Those who refused to abandon Islam were taken to the nearest Mohammedan territory. The city was the prize of Bohemond, and in his keeping it remained, although Raymond of Toulouse had made an effort to seize it by hoisting his banner on the walls. The work of pillage being ended, the churches were cleansed and repaired, and their altars blazed with golden spoils taken from the infidel. The Greek patriarch was again seated on his throne, but he held his office at the good pleasure of the Latins, and two years later he was made to give place to Bernard, a chaplain of the Bishop of Puy. Ten months had passed away after the conquest of Antioch when the main body of the crusading army set out on its march to Jerusalem. They had wished to depart at once, but their chiefs dreaded to encounter waterless wastes at the end of a Syrian summer, and for the present they were content to send Hugh of Vermandois and Baldwin of Hainois as envoys to the Greek emperor, to reproach him with his remissness or his want of faith. But the miseries endured by Christians and Turks were the pleasantest tidings in the ears of Alexius, for in the weakening of both lay his own strength, and he saw with satisfaction the departure of Hugh, not for Antioch, but for Europe, whither Stephen of Chartres had preceded him. Winter came, but the chiefs still lingered at Antioch. Some were occupied in expeditions against neighboring cities, but a more pressing care was the plague, which punished the foulness and disorder of the pilgrims. A band of 1,500 Germans, recently landed in strong health and full equipments, were all, it is said, cut off, and among the victims the most lamented, perhaps, was the papal legate Adhemar. A feeling of discouragement was again spreading through the army generally. The chiefs vainly entreated the Pope to visit the city where the disciples of St. Peter first received the Christian name. The people were disheartened by the animosities and the selfish or crooked policy of their chiefs. Raymond still hankered after the principality of Antioch, and insisted that Bohemond and his people should share in the last great enterprise of the crusade. More disgraceful than these feuds were the scenes witnessed during the siege and after the conquest of Mara. Heedlessness and waste soon brought the assailants to devour the flesh of dogs and of human beings. The bodies of Turks were torn from their sepulchres, ripped up for the gold which they were supposed to have swallowed, and the fragments cooked and eaten. Of the besieged, many slew themselves to avoid falling into the hands of the Christians. To some, Bohemond, tempted by a large bribe, gave an assurance of safety. When the massacre had begun, he ordered these to be brought forward. The weak and old he slaughtered, the rest he sent to the slave markets of Antioch. A weak attempt made by Alexius to detain the crusaders only spurred them to more vigorous efforts. They had already left Antioch, and Laodicea was in their hands, when he desired them to await his coming in June. The chiefs, remembering the departure of Tatikios with his Byzantine troops for Cyprus, retorted that he had broken his compact, and had therefore no further claims on their obedience. Hastening on their way, they crossed the plain of Beritos, Beirut, 
overlooked by the eternal snows of Lebanon, along the narrow strip of land whence the great Phoenician cities had sent their seamen and their colonists, with all the wealth of the east to the shores of the Adriatic and the gates of the Mediterranean. Having reached Jaffa, they turned inland to Ramla, a town sixteen miles only from Jerusalem. Two days later the crusaders came in sight of the holy city, the object of their long pilgrimage, the cause of wretchedness and death to millions. As their eyes rested on the scene hallowed to them through all the associations of their faith, the crusaders passed in an instant from fierce enthusiasm to a humiliation which showed itself in sighs and tears. All fell on their knees to kiss the sacred earth and to pour forth thanksgivings that they had been suffered to look upon the desire of their eyes. Putting aside their armor and their weapons, they advanced in pilgrim's garb and with bare feet toward the spot which the Savior had trodden in the hours of his agony and his passion. But before their feelings of devotion could be indulged, there was other work to be done. The chiefs took up their posts on those sides from which the nature of the ground gave most hope of a successful assault. On the northern side were Godfrey and Tancred, Robert of Flanders and Robert of Normandy. On the west, Raymond with his provincials. On the fifth day, without siege instruments, with only one ladder, and trusting to mere weight, the crusaders made a desperate assault upon the walls. Some succeeded in reaching the summit, and the very rashness of their attack struck terror for a moment into their enemies. But the garrison soon rallied, and the invaders were all driven back or hurled from the ramparts. The task, it was manifest, must be undertaken in a more formal manner. Siege engines must be made, and the palm and olive of the immediate neighborhood would not supply fit materials for their construction. These were obtained from the woods of Shechem, a distance of thirty miles, and the work of preparation was carried on under the guidance of Gaston of Beam by the crews of some Genoese vessels which had recently anchored at Jaffa. So passed away more than thirty days, days of intense suffering to the besiegers. At Antioch they had been distressed chiefly by famine. In place of this wretchedness they had here the greater miseries of thirst. The enemy had carefully destroyed every place which might serve as a receptacle of water, and in seeking for it over miles of desolate country, they were exposed to the harassing attacks of Muslim horsemen. Nor had visions and miracles improved the morals or discipline of the camp, and the ghost of Adamar of Puy appeared to rebuke the horrible sins which were drawing down upon them the judgments of the Almighty. Better service was done by the generosity of Tancred, who made up his quarrel with Raymond, and the enthusiasm of the crusaders was again roused by the preaching of Arnold and the hermit Peter. The narrative of the siege of Jericho in the book of Joshua suggested probably the procession in which the clergy singing hymns preceded the laity round the walls of the city. The Saracens on the ramparts mocked their devotions by throwing dirt upon crucifixes, but they paid a terrible price for these insults. On the next day the final assault began, and was carried on through the day with the same monotony of brute force and carnage which marked all the operations of this merciless war. The darkness of night brought no rest. The actual combat was suspended, but the besieged were incessantly occupied in repairing the breaches made by the assailants, while these were busied in making their dispositions for the last mortal conflict. In the midst of that deadly struggle, when it seemed that the cross must, after all, go down before the crescent, a knight was seen on Mount Olivet, waving his glistening shield to rouse the champions of the Holy Sepulchre to the supreme effort. It is St. George the Martyr who has come again to help us, cried Godfrey, 
and at his words the crusaders started up without a feeling of fatigue and carried everything before them the day we are told was friday the hour was three in the afternoon the moment at which the last cry from the cross announced the accomplishment of the saviour's passion when latold of tournoy stood the first victorious champion of the cross on the walls of jerusalem next to him came we are told his brother engelbert the third was godfrey tancred with the two roberts stormed the gate of st stephen the provincials climbed the ramparts by ladders and the conquest of jerusalem was achieved the insults offered a little while ago to the crucifixes were avenged by godfrey's orders in the massacre of hundreds the carnage in the mosque of omar swept away the bodies of thousands in a deluge of human blood the jews were all burnt alive in their synagogues the horses of the crusaders who rode up to the porch of the temple were so the story goes up to the knees in the loathsome stream and the forms of christian knights hacking and hewing the bodies of the living and the dead furnished a pleasant commentary on the sermon of urban at clermont from the duties of slaughter these disciples of the lamb of god passed to those of devotion bareheaded and barefooted clad in a robe of pure white linen in an ecstasy of joy and thankfulness mingled with profound contrition godfrey entered the church of the holy sepulchre and knelt at the tomb of his lord with groans and tears his followers came each in his turn to offer his praises for the divine mercy which had vouchsafed this triumph to the armies of christendom with feverish earnestness they poured forth the vows which bound them to sin no more and the excitement of prayer and slaughter perhaps of both combined led them to see everything which might be needed to give effect to the closing scene of this appalling tragedy as the saints had arisen from their graves when the son of man gave up the ghost on calvary so the spirits of the pilgrims who had died on the terrible journey came to take part in the great thanksgiving foremost among them was adhemar of puy rejoicing in the prayers for forgiveness and the resolutions of repentance which promised a new era of peace upon earth and of good will toward all men with departed saints were mingled living men who deserved all the honor which might be paid to them the backsliding of the hermit peter was blotted out of the memory of those who remembered only the fiery eloquence which had first called them to their now triumphant pilgrimage and the zeal which had stirred the heart of christendom to cut short the tyranny of the unbeliever in the birthland of christianity the assembled throng fell down at his feet and gave thanks to god who had vouchsafed to them such a teacher his task was done and in the annals of the time peter is heard of no more on this dreadful day tancred had spared three hundred captives to whom he had given a standard as a pledge of his protection and a guarantee of their safety such misplaced mercy was a crime in the eyes of the crusaders the massacre of the first day may have been aggravated by the ungovernable excitement of victory but it was resolved that on the next day there should be offered up a more solemn and deliberate sacrifice the men whom tancred had spared were all murdered and the wrath of tancred was roused not by their fate but by an act which called his honor into question the butchery went on with impartial completeness old and young decrepit men and women mothers with their infants boys and girls young men and maidens in the bloom of their vigor all were mowed down and their bodies mangled until heads and limbs were tossed together in awful chaos a few were hidden away by raymond of toulouse his motive however was not mercy but the prospects of gain in the slave market after this great act of faith and devotion the streets of the holy city were washed by saracen prisoners 
but whether these were butchered when their work was ended, we are not told. Four centuries and a half had passed away when these things were done, since Omar had entered Jerusalem as a conqueror and knelt outside the church of Constantine, that his followers might not trespass within it on the privileges of the Christians. The contrast is at the least marked between the Caliph of the Prophet and the children of the Holy Catholic Church. When, the business of the slaughter being ended, the chiefs met to choose a king for the realm which they had won with their swords, one man only appeared to whom the crown could fitly be offered. Baldwin was lord of Edessa, Bohemond ruled at Antioch, Hugh of Vermandois and Stephen of Chartres had returned to Europe, Robert of Flanders cared not to stay, the Norman Robert had no mind to forfeit the duchy which he had mortgaged, and Raymond was discredited by his avarice, and in part also by his traffic in the visions of Peter Barthelemy. But in the city where his lord had worn the thorny crown, the veteran leader who had looked on ruthless slaughter without blanching, and had borne his share in swelling the stream of blood, would wear no earthly diadem nor take the title of king. He would watch over his master's grave and the interests of his worshippers under the humble guise of baron and defender of the Holy Sepulchre. And as such, a fortnight after his election, Godfrey departed to do battle with the hosts of the Fatimite Caliph of Egypt, who now felt that the loss of Jerusalem was too high a price for the humiliation of his rivals. The conflict took place at Ascalon, and the Fatimite army was miserably routed. Godfrey returned to Jerusalem to hang the sword and standard of the Sultan before the Holy Sepulchre and to bid farewell to the pilgrims who were now to set out on their homeward journey. He retained with 300 knights under Tancred only 2,000 foot soldiers for the defense of his kingdom, and so ended the first act in the great drama of the Crusades. End of section 32.